What's going on, good fighters? Coming to you live with a whole lot of connection, intention, and purpose. I'm Dr. Nash Stopko, and coming to us from Grand Rapids, Michigan, is Dr. Gates Mayer. And as we usually do on Good Fighters Podcast, we have another uh, awesome guest today, Dr. Monique Andrews. Dr. Monique, how are you doing today? Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for having me on today, guys. Oh, it's our pleasure. I'd like to do a quick shout out to say Dr. Mo knows, and she's going to drop some knowledge on this podcast today, I'm sure. So, Maybe they might need a notebook and pencil or pen, I'm sure. That would be a, who knows, right? Could be a good idea. It's a podcast <laughs> so they can listen to it over again. I also tend to pretty quickly so they could like slow down the speed. <laughs> That's definitely good to know for you guys. Definitely one you want to put on repeat. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like I repeat all your Instagram posts. I put them up constantly on like uh, my feed and story. So if I'm repeating that, you're probably going to repeat the podcast too. So um, but like Dr. Nash said, we're just super grateful for you to be uh, joining us today and um, really just want to get into some of the work that you've put into the chiropractic field, neuroscience as a whole as well. Um, but overall, just really how you exemplify connection, attention and purpose in your daily life, because that's one of the pillars that we talk a lot about. So um, I wondered if we could start off and and to how you became a chiropractor, because obviously your background was more in research, correct? And just walk us through a little bit of that. Yeah, sure. Uh, this is a kind of an interesting story because, you know, at, you guys went to Palmer Davenport, right? And so yeah. uh, back in the day, I graduated 20 years ago now, but when I was there, you know, it seemed like everybody was, you know, either a fourth generation chiropractor where they had some miracle story. You know, one of my classmates, his grandfather was the janitor in BJ's mansion when BJ was there. Anyway, so, um, yeah, I followed a girl to chiropractic school. I was, you know, on my way to do a PhD at McGill in Montreal and uh, fate intervened, we'll say. And literally, I'm like, wherever she's going, I'm going. And I followed <laughs> her to chiropractic school, thought I was going to be a, uh, you know, a glorified physiotherapist with a doctor in front of my name. And um, it was about third quarter. I think it was third quarter. I have it written down somewhere. And uh, Reggie Gold came to speak on campus and oh, wow. uh, literally turned my whole life 180 degrees on its axis. And I really shifted from being, I think, you know, a mechanistically focused chiropractor to, you know, an incredibly principled chiropractor um, and still am today. That's awesome. I, I think that story rings true for a lot more students nowadays than then we might really even realize or somebody, somebody else might realize because I don't know about you, Gates, but we definitely, I mean, I'm pretty sure that we had plenty of students in our class that were feeling the same way. Yeah. And oh, yeah, now you go to a chiropractic school and there are students there who had never even been adjusted, you know? Uh, right. I think it's a very different scene today than it was even uh, 20 years ago when, when I was there. I was going to ask you that. When was your first adjustment then? First adjustment, I think I can get away with saying it out loud now. You know, when you're a student at Palmer, no adjusting outside of class. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's some good reasons for that. I was at a Arnaud Bernier seminar. I was in second trimester then. 
And uh, I remember C2, Body Right, Michael Zolper was a fellow student. I remember everything. You know, when you oh first go to God. chiropractic school and you're a student, everybody's making thoracics go pop. You know, that's not an adjustment. Yeah. And, and in fact, I don't believe moving a bone is an adjustment. BJ said, you know, if all you do is move a bone, that's not correcting subluxation. And Absolutely. so, but I think the very first time that I probably corrected a subluxation was when I was in second trimester and, uh, yeah, gotta love Arno. He's, you know, one of the masters that is in our profession that's still around really. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, with that, I think that's a nice little segue into, I want to know, cause you do a lot of work within the Vegas nerve obviously. First off, where does the love for the vagus nerve come from? I feel like you are just like top notch when you're speaking out about vagus nerve and I love it. So where does the love come from? And then can you kind of dive into, you know, maybe some of the science of, of yeah. what you try to look for and for it? Sure. I think, you know, for me in, in so many things, I have one foot in neuroscience and the other foot in the metaphysical. And I think the vagus nerve, well, I think anything that you, if you would look closely enough, you can dive into those realms. But the vagus nerve in particular, there's been a lot of research in conventional um, medicine uh, that looks at stimulating the vagus nerve and its impact. So 20 years ago, they used to actually put uh, the surgically implant, like a cardiac pacemaker, they would surgically implant a vagus nerve simulator and they innervated the vagus nerve. And specifically, they started doing research looking at helping people that had intractable epilepsy. So epileptics, if it's really severe, can sometimes be unresponsive to any medication, any type of intervention. And what they found, you know, like I said, around 20 years ago now, is that if you stimulated the vagus nerve, it could have really profound um, positive treatment effects in epileptics. That worked, and they started using it in people that had intractable depression, depression that doesn't respond to any pharmacotherapeutic intervention, didn't respond to electroconvulsive or electroshock therapies, actually started to respond to vagus nerve stimulation. Interesting side wow. note, um, in those early research days, people died from the research studies because what they didn't know is that by if they stimulated, the right vagus innervates the sinoatrial node, which actually controls heart rate. And if they overstimulated the right vagus, it could drop people into such low bradycardia that they could die. Here's the interesting, really interesting thing about that. <laughs> Number one, don't, you know, people always think, am I going to die from stimulating my vagus? <laughs> no, stay away from surgically implanted uh, innervation of the right vagus. Uh, they figured out that, uh, you know, innervating the left was fine. But, you know, if we look at poly polyvagal practices, you know, what do yogis and meditators do, right? They want to get into these deep, deep states of relaxation. Well, how do you do that? You do that through these practices that actually impact the vagus in a way that you drop into what's called dorsal vagal, that you go mm -hmm. into those basic survival um, states where your heart rate drops really low, any meditators on there, you know what happens. If you, if you go, if you really drop deep into meditation, heart rate goes way down, respiration go, I can get deep into where I have maybe, you know, two respirations a minute and it just, everything goes down. And that has also has to do with the vagus nerve, right? 
And so my love for Vegas comes from this way that I can really play with, look, there's all this research. Oh, and it's called the compassion nerve. And I can look at it from a meditative contemplative perspective. And now the science has really started to marry the two of those. So I can talk about it in either way. And it really fulfills my two life passions, which are um, neuroscience and contemplative practice. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. I remember learning about some of that, uh, some of that like early research of those implants in in school. I don't remember if it was in undergrad or if it was in chiropractic school, but I do remember reading on some of that. Yeah, I don't think they teach a lot about polyvagal and chiropractic, and I think we really should be. You know, where does the vagus sit? Right on front of the TP of Atlas, down in front of the cervical spine, in and around this upper cervical area, you know, the branch of the vagus nerve that's the closest to the skin, right? The sensory branch of the vagus that we can most easily have an impact is the auricular branch, right? In and around the ear. And, you know, this is my perspective is that as chiropractors, when you adjust the upper cervical spine, you are impacting the vagus nerve function and certainly the tone. I don't know about you guys. I've had some adjustments too, or it's, I mean, you don't even realize how much you're adapting to a reduced amount of nerve flow to like your auricular part of your ear, but like, I'll literally have like really clean, uh, subluxations get cleared. And I'm just like, wow, that is just, I mean, it's amazing to like experience it firsthand and yeah. you know, you'll hear, I don't know if you've heard it. I'm sure you have just have some people get off the table. And like, wow, like I just didn't, my hearing is just so much clearer. And, uh, it's just, so profound because you don't I mean that's not the stuff that you go through especially nowadays in school about the importance of upper cervical chiropractic care true chiropractic care yeah and I wasn't an upper cervical only doc in practice you know I I certainly did my fair share of it I was more uh, low force and um, you know corrected the subluxations where they lay so to speak but, you know, we cannot, we, I think as a chiropractor, you should have a lot of reverence for that upper cervical area, especially when it comes to the neurology. It's just so complex, so beautiful, so elegant. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's one of those things. And I'm pretty sure, I don't think I heard polyvagal mentioned one time in chiropractic college. Um, and I, that's one thing that I would hope that we could kind of get into what is polyvagal theory? How does it apply to chiropractors specifically? And, or even just someone's daily life, if they're listening, they're like, I'm not even a chiropractor, but I want to learn more about that. Yeah. So polyvagal theory was created by Stephen Porges back in the nineties. And basically he, he, he actually studied heart rate variability in the late sixties, early seventies. And what he noticed is that when there were changes in people's autonomic nervous system, it wasn't just a physiological change. There were also changes in how they expressed themselves behaviorally, how they would express themselves cognitively, emotionally. And so he developed polyvagal to really understand why people respond the way that they do in response to stress. And so, for example, if you are frightened or if you're in, you know, the throws of some sort of trauma, what happens, right? Heart rate goes up, your voice will change. Um, all of these series of changes that can be related back to changes in physiology, but that we don't necessarily see it that way, right? 
And, uh, and so there's three main facets to polyvagal theory. Everybody kind of knows about the autonomic hierarchy, the fact that we have, you know, that the vagus nerve splits, we have ventral vagal, which is that loving, calm, connected, what Porges calls a social engagement system. Uh, we have sympathetic, everybody thinks fight or flight, right? And then most people, when they think about um, vagus, they think rest and digest. Well, that's one part of it. And so if we think about the vagus nerve as the state, the parasympathetic, the parasympathetic state that we want to be in when we are recovering, when the homeostatic mechanisms are being tended to, when immune system is high, when we're digesting our food, right? But the vagus nerve splits dorsal vagal and poly, sorry, dorsal vagal and ventral vagal. And ventral vagal is that highest realm of being. Dorsal vagal is basic, minimal, instinctual kind of survival where we go into freezer fawn. And um, the way the autonomic nervous system evolved is from the bottom up so that we first have basic instinct where that's kind of the lizard brain where you play dead. That's dorsal vagal. Then you have sympathetic. And then we evolved as humans to have this beautiful neocortex where connection became our highest um, human need. Right. What is that? What are your three words? Connection, intention, purpose. Purpose. Right. And so connection really is our highest human need. And what Poor just said is that using the autonomic hierarchy is that as humans, when we are challenged, we devolve through that hierarchy. So the first thing that we do is we look for social connection. Big mm. problem in a current state of you know public health mandates saying socially distance, isolate, quarantine, right? And he says that connection actually is a biological imperative that that's being compromised right now. So no. let's say you go into, you're being traumatized or you're in a highly stressful situation. The first thing that you do, you look for human engagement, that you use that social engagement ventral vagal system to connect with other humans. Failing that, you drop into fight or flight. Do I need to get the hell out of here, right? And then if you, if you are, if your life is threatened, what may happen is that you go into freeze mode and that's exactly what lizards do, right? They play dead. So that's the auto, that's only the autonomic, that's the auto autonomic hierarchy of polyvagal in a nutshell. There's two other components, co-regulation and neuroception. And we can talk about those if you guys want. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was just geeking out at what you were talking about. Yeah, there, me so too. I mean, sure. <laughs> but, you know, I, I love what you had to say there about, you know, the connection portion and even just like bringing that to our, our current state of awareness that the narrative recently has just been a complete lacking in destruction of human connection. And I, I don't know if we quite have seen implications that that'll have, but more importantly, uh, forming connections between young, young kids and the next generations that they're not developing these, these fundamental principles and values that really promote uh, progression of the human race. Well, Nash, actually, we already are starting to see some of the detrimental impacts of social mandates like distancing and masks, because, for example, um, anxiety and depression rates are higher right now than they've ever been in our lifetimes. Uh, suicide is now the second leading cause of death in 12 to 18 and 18, 24 year olds. I mean, if that doesn't break your heart, I, I don't yeah. know what does. And we, yeah. there's no way we can deny that that is related to what's been happening with public health mandates and things like masking. Like even from a polyvagal perspective, 
social engagement system, what do you, what happens when you try to socially connect with another human? It's through the face mostly, right? Face, tone of voice. And when you put a mask on, you remove that. I don't know how little kids are, are managing today and it looks like not very well. I just hope this is that the tide is shifting because, um, you know, we're looking the, I think, you know, I think there'll be a lot of PhD theses that um, have their basis in what's happened to, you know, the psychology and the traumatic experience of these last few years. I don't want to just completely derail what you offered to keep going a little bit deeper with that. But I do have a a personal question based because you're living in Oakland, correct? Yep. So I know, obviously, we're familiar that California in general is a bit more on the extreme side. As far as like mandates and just overall, um, at least public narrative. But is there any, is, I'm, I'm sure there are communities around even Oakland that are aware of the, the negative impacts that all this is having. And are you in contact with them and what that look like? you know, going into 2022 and and beyond. Yeah, it's interesting because they're starting to talk about lifting some of the mandates. And, you know, when I was first coming back here to Oakland from Canada, people were like, why are you going to California? It's very strict. I'm like, have you been to Canada? Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a certain amount for me that's uncomfortable. I'm somebody who, I'm not like one, you know, there's people who like struggle with eye contact. I'm like, I struggle with not, having eye contact. Like I'm somebody who needs that. And um, so that's been challenging. Like, I don't, you know, I think for me, the masking is not just an inconvenience. I think we are having physiological, neurological consequences that, you know, as you said, we won't even know how far reaching for years to come, but certainly some of the preliminary data is really showing, um, let's just say undesirable uh, impact. As far as communities, yeah, sure. That you know, there's if you're within alternative medicine, if you're a chiropractor, you're always going to have your tribe that you know doesn't ascribe to that to the current philosophy and what's happening in public health, and that's really great. Like I'm so thankful for the people that I have around me, um, but also you, you, you know, I I'm somebody who I don't I don't like being caged, and um, I'm I'm missing that uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things I even think about too, even after we're done with this, is the movement into the metaverse and, and just priming into that and how detrimental from here it, it might not even be the worst of it that we've seen as well, as far as that connection, uh, connectivity. You know, so I think we think about it a lot in terms of health and mental health as chiropractors. I really worry about what are the policies and things that they're doing, you know, sort of in the background that we don't even know about. Right. And they're trying to pass a law right now in Canada that um, like the CRTC, which is the governing body around radio, television, Internet, has always been pretty strict in Canada. And now Trudeau and his government are trying to very quickly pass a law that um, limits what you can talk about on social wow. media. I mean, that's censorship at its worst and, and yeah. the claim is, and I, and is that it's about limiting hate speech. Well, how do we govern that and who governs that? And what does that look like? And who decides what is misinformation? I mean, this is a, a term that I've never heard so much in my whole life as I have in the last year yeah. is misinformation. Um, it's interesting, right? Like the whole Rogan thing. 
a year ago, chiropractors hated him because he <laughs> He's failed so against chiropractic. Yeah. And now yeah. everybody's putting him on an altar. It's like, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I know that's one thing too. Just hearing that stuff out of Canada and with my wife being Canadian, it breaks her heart. It really does to see her home country going through that. I'm sure that you can probably resonate with that as well. Oh, yeah. Um, there's some amazing, like I've been following. I, I think it's really important to get your news sources from different from different places. Because absolutely. news is not, you know, what it used to be. News is who's who's paying for this narrative. That's your news. And so I think it's yeah. really important to always be looking for multiple sides of the story. And in Canada right now, and, and in a lot of the U.S. and probably other countries, mainstream media are portraying the trucker convoy as some like, you know, radical fringe group of terrorists. I mean, Trudeau has called them terrorists and has now enacted this, you know, Emergency Measures Act. Probably by the time this podcast airs, I hope we're on the other side of that. But there's right. some really scary things happening. Yeah. And that's one thing that I find ironic about this situation as well. It's like you said, how, who identifies what hate speech is? Because there has been derogatory comments towards not the, only the truckers, but the anti-vaccine community as a whole or anybody that goes against what yeah, essentially he has to say. Right? Yeah. Anti-mandate. He, Trudeau was on a French uh, a Radio Quebec talk show, I guess, a few weeks ago, and he referred to the anti-mandate protesters that they were all racists and misogynists. And um, I mean, this is a world leader. It shouldn't yeah. be, it shouldn't be tolerated. Talk about right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely not. Making Absolutely Kim Jong-un blush. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I don't know. Well, it's just, it's just sad because, you know, growing up before obviously all of this, you always heard and you still do just hear about how kind and empathetic and, uh, just genuine Canadian people are as a whole but then just to have this flip side where like you know that was just been taken advantage of to a whole new degree that um, their kindness and, and willingness to just not be an inconvenience for somebody else is just taken advantage of like it's just disgusting and um, my greatest concern is that Canadians are being misled by the you know, the two largest mainstream media uh, outlets in the country, one of which is basically funded by the government. So, you know, it kind of starts to border on the extreme of fascism when the government controls the message, uh, literally, not just the message that they're paying for through something like the CBC, but also then the messages that we are allowed to discuss on social media. And I just pray that we don't get to that place and that we have a peaceful resolution to the current situation, which includes elimination of all the mandates, which science has now shown there's no longer any value to. It's not complicated. Uh, what's complicated is the fact that the government is controlling the narrative in a way that most Canadians are not getting to hear about it. Absolutely. During this time too, can you walk us through like some of your daily practices to kind of to go back to calming that nervous system, because I know you probably need a lot of that. Yeah, we're getting so everybody we, riled up. Raise yeah. that state, you know. <laughs> so what do we, what can others do and what do you do personally to kind of get back to that, that two respiratory per minute state? Yeah, um, so my daily practice, 
there's a few elements. Number one, it always, I do a meditation that really employs a combination of breath work and polyvagal exercises. That's something that I actually just um, made available recently through a course that I dropped called Nervous System Balm, B-A-L-M, not B-O-M-B. And in that course, I actually go through what that practice looks like. So that there are certain things that you can do with breath work and with your intention to raise and elevate your parasympathetic tone. And I think, you know, right now, especially that's a practice that we all want to be doing as much as possible. Um, So I do my meditation. I do that includes breath work. I do move some sort of movement every day. Right now I'm living somewhere where there's a pool. So I float as much as I possibly can. Sometimes that is my meditative practice. Um, I read for at least an hour every day. It's actually the first thing I do. I used to be meditate, then read. Now what I do is I read for an hour and it has to be, it's it's always nonfiction. Um, So something that I want to be studying that for sure is at least an hour a day, reading, meditating, some sort of movement. Obviously, you know, you got to eat well, you got to be with, you got to have connection with other human beings. Physical touch is really important. Um, I, I alluded earlier to the fact that Poor just says that um, connection is a biological imperative. We need it. And I think that includes phys- physical touch with some human every day. The saddest people I ever met in practice were people that lived alone that mm. had no contact with other humans. And I don't think that was just like an emotional response. I think physiologically our body, well, I, we could go through the mechanisms by which physical touch creates changes that are desirable. Um, yeah, I think those are the key elements for me. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, I think one of the, oh, here we go. I think one of the saddest moments in my life and not to get, uh, you know, just turn this in a different direction. Cause I know we're going into some really awesome stuff about how to raise your state. And one of the saddest moments in my life were the time from the time when I graduated undergrad between the time I started grad or chiropractic school. And it was really uh, such a shift for me coming from a background of playing college sports where I'm around over a hundred teammates all on like, you know, similar goals and uplifting everybody to where I move home where, you know, my parents are at work all day long and I'm just there by myself. And like, I'm waiting two months to start grad school, but I was just like, you know, I don't have Mm. any sort of connection here and all my friends are either working or in school somewhere else. So I just remember that was a really hard time for me personally that I couldn't really figure out why I was just so down, but like, it makes a lot more sense when I really think about that, that connection level. I just had no connection. I I went from being plugged into a hundred people to two or three, a couple hours a day. So yeah. I really worry about students today, you know, a lot of times with so much more of education going online and so much of our connection happening through a computer. It's not the same thing. Can we connect online? Sure. Uh, There is no replacement for physically being in the presence of another human. Um, Yeah. Those hugs and conversations feel a lot different in person than than not. But and you're talking about connection. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the spiritual aspect because I was reading through one of your posts and just chiropractic and its spiritual component. Can you kind of dive into that and what you know? Maybe some link some of these things for people that don't connect the two and how you can kind of get to that plane. Yeah, well, so some of the there's some great studies now 
neurologically based work in chiropractic, but also in meditation. In fact, the studies that were being done in meditation and looking at what's happening from a neuroimaging perspective predate the chiropractic work that is doing, you know, neurodiagnostic imaging kind of stuff now. And so what we do know is that when you adjust the brain, you actually are impacting areas of the brain, the same areas of areas of the brain that they believe where our consciousness resides, right? Things like compassion, gratitude, connection. It's these same areas in the prefrontal cortex, that feeling part, that medial prefrontal cortex, where these sort of um, desirable contemplative states are. So they do these really cool studies on these monks who've been meditating for, you know, over, if you meditate, you have to meditate for 10,000 hours to be considered a master meditator. Okay. Mm. And just to give you some perspective, that takes you probably about, um, you know, maybe 50 years to get to that place. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's 10,000 hours is no joke. Anyway, they they take a th- they study these master meditators with these EEG caps and they look for areas of the brain that become activated during compassion and uh, medial prefrontal cortex, those exact same areas that we're now looking at and seeing that we are creating changes with the chiropractic adjustment. You know, something that mm, I say all wow. the time is that when you adjust the spine, you change the brain. And when you change someone's brain, you change their life. I don't just mean getting them out of pain. In fact, that's a great effect of chiropractic is pain relief, but that's not why I do what I do. It's not why I was in practice doing it. It's not why I continue to try and teach people about the impact of chiropractic, because guess what? I think that when you change somebody's life through chiropractic, you really are elevating consciousness of humanity. And the science now tells us that the science supports that concept. And that's where the idea of, you know, reuniting the physical and the spiritual comes from. You know, BJ and DD, they were no fools. And a lot of their ideas, their philosophy actually come from Eastern mysticism. It comes, if you go back and read a lot of the old, you know, uh, Taoism, you go back and read early Buddhist um, scholarly teachings, a lot of what DD and BJ had to say really was born out of um, Eastern religion. Yeah. Would you consider that area to be the same place where, you know, the, the, the concept of the soul, the soul would reside in that prefrontal cortex and in this chiropractic making changes in, in that regards, maybe? What a great question. Here's what I will say to you. <laughs> <laughs> we are not a body with a soul. We are a soul with a body. Do I think the soul resides in the medial prefrontal cortex? No, I'm not even sure consciousness resides there. In fact, there's two prevailing theories of consciousness. One is that consciousness resides in the brain. And if you read Anil Seth, he just wrote a book called Being You. It's on my shelf, right over my shoulder here. <laughs> and uh, he's a like a computational neuroscientist. So neuroscience today, they really want to say, this is how the brain creates consciousness. Now, talk to somebody like Donnie Epstein right? He's not going to say the brain creates consciousness. And I'm kind of in his camp. I think that the brain is a conduit for consciousness. I don't think it creates it, right? Like, just like your eyes don't create vision, they allow your brain to interpret 
a visual experience. So your eyes are a conduit. I think the mm-hmm. brain is a conduit for consciousness, the same way the eyes are a conduit for vision. And uh, we may never fully understand it. I don't personally, I don't care if we ever understand how the brain does that. I believe consciousness is in the field and the brain is like an antenna that taps into that. Now, maybe some like neuroscience nerds listening to that are disappointed, but (laughs) I'm I'm a romantic scientist, which means I love that mystical part of what it is that makes up our life experience. You know, I'm not so bold to think that we're going to figure it all out. And it's fun. It's a fun science is a fun game. It's like a, it's like, you know, when I was in high school, I used to go to the mall and play video games. That's what happened way back then before you had a lot of, you know, Nintendo 64 and all that stuff. Um, Yeah. Like, I think it's, it's a fun game. Science is a tool. It is not the be all and end all. And yeah, um, yeah I think I, maybe that was a bit of a rant there. No, I, I love that concept of being a romantic scientist. I honestly, I, I love not that label, but that, that term that you use. And I think that describes a lot of chiropractors too, that are out there trying to bring that connectivity within the healthcare field. And um you know, I, one that's of my not favorite... my term. I borrow that. Oh, that's okay. Gerda, <laughs> I'm going to borrow who, it from you. I'm going to borrow it from who you. I think, you know, probably was one of the first well-known romantic scientists. Um, my favorite quote is a Gerda quote, which is at the moment of commitment, the universe conspires to assist you. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which brings us to intention, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And one so, of my favorite writings is of, of BJ talking about the subconscious being super conscious. And I love your antenna. I just loved it all. That's all I got to say about that. And that's pure Freud. Like, yeah. I don't want to take anything from BJ. He certainly I didn't even know that. Original, he certainly was an original thinker. And like all of us, we get our ideas from reading and studying yeah. other people. And yeah. BJ was no different. Yeah. True. No, no, no. I was just going to say, going off of your quote, I think that ties in really well, like you mentioned, to intention. So going off of that that quote that you'd mentioned, it actually kind of sparked a little bit of something else. Because I'm reading a book called Limitless by Jim Quick. Yep. And in it, he talks about motivation being the combination of um, not just your intentions, but also execution and what he calls uh, the three S's are like S cubed, which would be small, simple steps. But, you know, my question for you is, do you have any practices or what's your what's your true um, setup look like when you're trying to develop and make sure your your intentions are coming from you authentically, not just for you, but for your tribe? Yes. So I've spent a long time in my life figuring out what my life purpose is. Mm. And um, like, I think that's one of the most important practices that we can undertake as a human being is to determine what is my purpose. And uh, I also believe that we have to like distill that down to the simplest um, idea. Because when you can distill your purpose down to, for me, it's a three word statement. Mm. Then if you, whatever you maybe start to think, do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? 
it can become a very simple no answer. So step number one, be clear on your purpose and make the question so that at any point when you're trying to make a decision, you can ask yourself, am I fulfilling my purpose? Yes or no. And that'll help you make your decision. Number one. So being clear on purpose. My purpose is to ease the path. So whenever I'm faced with indecision in my life, which sometimes happen, it happens less as you age, by the way, I will, if I'm having a difficult time deciding on something, I will ask myself, does this ease the path? Mostly it's in reference to others, easing the path for others. And, and the answer is yes or no. And if the answer is no, it's not the right, it's not authentic. It's not the right thing. So number one, you got to get clear on your purpose. Number two, you employ strategies of neuroscience. <laughs> Neuro, if you want to change the brain, right? People think that brain change happens like that. And transient brain change does happen very quickly. But if you want to create neuroplastic change in structure and function, it requires three things. Intention, action, and repetition. Mm. So what is it that we actually we put it in our mind to have an intention. Now, intention is very powerful, right? Action is simple. Do the thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> Do the thing. And then repetition is also simple. Do that over and over and over and over again, right? It's a great argument for why seeing a chiropractor needs to be repeated. If you want to create neuroplastic change, then we need to have action. We need to have repetition. You need to keep, you need to keep getting it done, right? You need to keep yeah. seeing a chiropractor and getting those subluxations corrected. Now, what about intention? This is the hard part. It's also the most beautiful because when you start to thinking about something that you want, when you create an intention, energy flows where attention goes, right? So we don't just think about something in our mind. Well, that's really important because when you start to think about something, your medial prefrontal cortex comes on. And what it does is you ask yourself, what do I want? Your medial prefrontal cortex starts integrating all the different neural networks in your brain to be like, what does she want? What happened before? What if we do that? What does that look like? How does that make me feel emotionally? But what it does is your medial prefrontal cortex starts to create a vision of your intention. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, your brain starts to interpret that vision, let's call it a dream or a vision, as reality. And in fact, your brain doesn't know the difference between an image it has and what's reality? Because reality is your intention. Your intention sets your reality. Okay. Now, here we have this dream in your mind. How do we get it from just being in our mind so that it we it takes over the body? And this is what I talk about in my course, Nervous System Bomb, that we need to embody our in intention. And when we can drop it into our body, so it's not just top down, it's also happening bottom up. When we embody our dreams, that's when we translate that intention into reality, that embodied mm. practices that incorporate both the mind and the body change that from being a dream or an idea in the future to something that is happening right now. Again, remember, the brain doesn't know the difference between a vision you have and what's happening out in the world, because what is the brain doing? It's interpreting its environment, right? Second concept of polyvagal theory is neuroception. The brain is constantly surveilling its environment. It's internal and external. It's interoceptive and extraceptive environments for its, 
it's reality. If you can embody your intention, make that take that from a dream just in the medial prefrontal cortex, which starts to integrate all those neural networks to make that a reality and also bring it into the body. This is the most potent tool we have for making our dreams come true when we engage both the mind and the brain. I just got chills. Yeah. <laughs> and that goes exactly <laughs> to quote, just the universe putting forth everything that you need to make whatever that, that embodiment is happen. And that's powerful. And how, can you talk about how one can do that consistently? Because what I find is, especially with a lot of students, and even in my oh, own student journey. What did I just say, Gates, that you need to have neuroplastic change? Repetition. Intention, action. action, repetition. So you just make a commitment. You know, I think what happens a lot is we get distracted. There's the idea between, uh, you know, a commitment and a passion, a commitment that you do when, yeah, an interest you do when time serves, and a commitment is something that you do no matter what. And um, you just decide. It's simple. A lot of times people are like, oh, I'm having such a hard time. Like, that's because you haven't committed. Mm. You just decide, yeah. I'm going to do this. And you just do it every single day. That's like my morning practice. My meditation practice is a non-negotiable. So you yeah. decide. Your non-negotiable list should be short. And uh, you figure out what mm. that practice is that every day that brings you to your highest possible evolution as a human being. And you commit to doing that. That's that's how you do it. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I I really love what you, what you really laid down for everybody right there because even just talking about the brain being the antenna, it's still you know picking up you know you know talking about you know dreams and futures. It's still receiving you know putting those visions into reality, manifesting those. And I was curious if you, if you had any more insight on the kind of what that looks like for you know creating that that vision to really manifest more so what that dream could be um you know walt disney had this uh the way that they created disney projects was through storyboarding Hmm. it's different than vision boarding right a vision board you know that that's like just your dream phase but storyboarding is actually how you systematically plan any project, right? So that could be from what your dream practice looks like, what your dream associateship looks like, how do you plan it all out? And so storyboarding is this really great strategy that we teach uh, with new docs who are wanting to start practice. And again, it doesn't have to be you're building your own practice. That's not for everybody. You know, for some people, it's like, I need to find my dream position. What does that look like? And so storyboarding is really a systematic approach to figuring out how do I need to plan? How can I plan my future? And so the way storyboarding works is you start with an idea. Let's say it's start a practice and then you create a series of uh, headers underneath that. So it's like location, equipment, licensing and insurance marketing, like all of the different Mm. categories. And then underneath that, you break down who, what, where, when, why for every single one of those. What does that mean? Where do I get my, what kind of tables? Am I going to have HRV? Do I need da, 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 da. If I look at location, where is it going to be? Is there, do I need to consider things like staffing and all that? And you just break it down into these bite-sized chunks that are manageable. 
a lot of times students, well, not just students, people become overwhelmed when all they can see is the mountain, right? Instead of breaking it down into what equipment do I need to climb? Do I have the right shoes? When do I climb? What the weather? And then when you start to look at things in these smaller pieces, then you can really start to decide what am I tackling? What do I need to tackle in my life? And that's something, again, that you can gamify, right? Like, how do I make this exciting? Because there's unsexy things. Unsexy things are, what's my EHR? What's, how do I, what insurance mm-hmm. provider do I get? Da, 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 da. And there's some fun stuff. Anytime that you want to make big changes in your life, you got to have a plan, man. I've never met so many people in my whole life that didn't have a plan that I met, you know, when I was teaching at a chiropractic school. When I graduated from chiropractic school, my wife and I were like, man, we were full of piss and vinegar. We were like, let's go. We knew what we wanted. We had our business cards for our office, but you know, like we were like, let's go. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell some, I used to walk through five miles in the snow kind of thing, but like, just have a plan. It's not that complicated. And if you're not clear on how to do that, reach out. Um, you know, we have a great program that's called transitions. We run it a couple of times a year. That's for about to graduate students and new docs to create a plan and walk them through this process of storyboarding and, you know, just like creating habits in their daily life that really elevate your experience in the world and who you are as a human being. I know you mentioned your nervous system bomb, your, the, the transitions course that you just mentioned as well. Is there anything else specifically that you offer and I know that you have other courses that students right now or or soon to be graduating students need to take need to take to be able to get to that higher consciousness well I mean I don't know what's need to take I think that students graduating today I, I don't know if they need to take my stuff our transitions program is awesome and uh We've have some really great results with students and new docs that take that program to get them, you know, to that next plane. Um, But I think, you know, something that's really important is just finding great mentors. You got to have a mentor, somebody who that, you know, is going to call you on your shit, but also help, you know, be constantly pulling you along that help to help you elevate your game. What does that look like? You know, as a student in school should be looking for mentors now that, you know, um, that you resonate with. And the only way to do that is to go and talk to different people and learn as many things, you know, to, to not have blinders and to just put yourself out there. Yeah, absolutely. I know you offer some stuff in regards to HRV and you've mentioned it a couple of times. In regards to polyvagal as a whole in HRV together, what are some things that chiropractors or even people out there that they need to know about HRV and its application into healthcare as a whole? Yeah, so HRV is another thing that's been around for almost three decades now that has been studied extensively in medicine and conventional science and is widely accepted as an objective measure of overall health and resilience. Honestly, I I think number one, every chiropractor should use some objective measure. You got to put your money where your mouth is. If you like, it's not enough to wave your hands in the air and say the power that made the body heals the body that that worked in the nineties and got you a Mercedes. And today people like to actually see proof of what you're telling them. Right. And where many chiropractors fall short, I think is that they're not using objective measures one of which is HRV. Thermography could be one. Um, 
outcome assessment tools and screens that look at quality of life as an objective measure, like looking at measures of stress and resilience, right? These are objective measures. Heart rate variability is one that is widely accepted as an overall measure of health and resilience. I don't know why we're not using it in practice, why more chiropractors aren't using it in practice. It's a really great tool and there's fun equipment. You don't all have to buy the, you know, $15,000 system. You can get, you know, tools that, that are now available to the public that allow you to engage your patients, your practice members to start looking at HRV themselves to determine their readiness state and other cool, you know, um, va values that are in those like, you know, uh, you know, elite HRV and the aura ring and different things like that. People are more educated today. They have access because of the internet. Yeah. They want to be engaged. And if you're a doc that engages your patients at the level of the science that they have access to, you're going to be the go-to. And that's the key, I think, you know, uh, at least it was for us. We had a very successful practice and our patients, we had patients that would come and just hang out in our reception, even if it wasn't on a day they were getting an adjustment because they just love the vibe. That's awesome. Um, yeah. That's something to, you know, I think ascribe to. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's one of the dreams I think for, for most principal chiropractors, it's not just to serve people. I mean, obviously that's a component of it, but to really build a community of people that love on each other and love on you because to serve others, you got to be able to have your cup filled. That's a two way street. Yeah. And it requires a lot of work to show up on purpose. Like, solid and grounded every single day. And that only comes from daily practice, intention, action, repetition, every single day, decide what it is you're going to do and commit to it. That's perfect. There's one um, portion of your Instagram where you had that, how having, let's make having a calm and adaptive nervous system, the new health metric. And I think that just perfectly exemplifies where chiropractic we need to have that measure and show the gold standard of that with what we're trying to do. So yeah, it's not, in, agree. it's not in any way unprincipled to use yeah. objective measure. I think in fact, it's extremely principled. It makes you a much more right. principled chiropractor. If you are evaluating pre and post, how do you know if you've corrected a subluxation? It doesn't hurt anymore. No, that's just a subjective <laughs> experience, right. right? Is motion palpation enough? I think you need an objective measure. Tell me, show me, show me. Mm. Mm. And patients are going to rave about that. Everybody. hundred percent. Nobody ever said to me, nobody ever <laughs> said to me, that's too much info. I don't, I, you know, too much. <laughs> yeah. oh, I didn't ask, do you have any more questions for Dr. Mo? Uh, you know, to be quite honest, I don't really, um, I, this is more than I could have ever imagined it was going to be. And this was amazing for, I mean, I know the listeners, but also for me too. And I really appreciate you and your, your connection, your intention and your on purposeness to, to keep serving people around the planet. Thanks, Nash. Um, Beautiful. Thanks for inviting me to have this conversation today and um, you know, keep doing what you're doing. It's so important to have young voices, uh, bringing attention to the things that matter to you as opposed to, you know, the kind of old school rhetoric where you're told this is the way. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
That's amazing. And I really appreciate you coming on with us, Dr. Mo. And just, you know, if if I'm a student and your, you know, neuro, neuro review, your HRV course, your everything that you offer is just, even if this was just a small fraction of what you offer in there, I'd be running to that as a student. I mean, even as a chiropractor, as a practicing doctor, I want to run to it. So every student that has I would- to- Two things I would recommend is students check out my Dr. Monos program. I offer so many scholarships and I have a mandate this next series that's coming up in April. And if I can get, if I can reach my goal of 50 docs, I want to make that uh, my Dr. Monos program, if not free, extremely affordable to every student out there. So check out Dr. Monos. It's drmonos.com. Um, also check out some of the polyvagal stuff. My, our uh, foundation website, which is pranafound.org, check that and please give us a follow on Instagram. It's a pretty new um, uh, profile on Instagram. So the underscore prana underscore foundation. We'd love to get some more um, followers in there. And, you know, our mission is really to support students and docs to help them become the highest possible versions of themselves. Um, so any way that we can support you, please just let us know. That's perfect. And where can they find you personally? On they can find Instagram me at Dr. Media? Monique Andrews on Instagram, at Dr. Monique Andrews on Instagram. Please, please give me a follow there. Please give at the Prana Foundation a follow and look at them. Always, you know, have offers and different stuff for students. And then look for our transitions program to uh, drop again in April. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for coming on and, and joining us. Good Fighters, this is the Good Fighter Podcast, and you know where to find us on Instagram and our personal pages, DC underscore Nash underscore T, Gatesmare underscore DC. Um, Dr. Noah, I can't thank you enough. I know I've said it like four times already, but I honestly can't. <laughs> thank you so much, guys. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. <laughs>